Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Costa Rica Travel Pass. And we'd also like to make a special request this morning. This podcast survives on the donations of listeners like you. For those of you who have become premium subscribers, who have donated in other ways, thank you so much for that. It it means the world to me, and I hope that you feel like you're getting your worth out of that. For those of you who are new listeners to the program or who have listened for a long time, who have considered donating but have not as of yet, uh, would you please consider doing so today? Uh, All I ask uh, for those who want to become premium subscribers is a dollar a month or $10 a year. It's not much, but uh, it it does do a a great uh, service to this podcast to be able to allow us to have the equipment and technology, to be able to have high-speed internet uh, so that files can be uploaded, things can be recorded in a quality that is uh, that is good enough to make this podcast successful. It also allows us to have some flexibility when things come up, such as last year, the trip uh, to Utah to be at the fair conference and to speak on behalf of those who have had trials of faith. So if you would please consider being a premium subscriber or making a donation in some way, again, you can do that by going to mormondiscussion.podbean.com. You can click the PayPal button for a one-time donation, or you can also click the Become a Premium Subscriber tab and uh, sign up for that. You'll be on the mailing list, and you will also have an opportunity to listen to some of the better episodes uh, months before everybody else does. And uh, again, thank you so much. I love doing this podcast. I appreciate each of you tuning in and listening. I am grateful to each of you and appreciate greatly the emails that you send either thanking me or asking for help or sharing your story. Many of these have led to people contacting me about interviews that will be up and coming. So thank you so much. God bless you. And now on to what you've been waiting to hear. In today's episode, I wanted to spend some time going going over a really cool article that I I think many of you have probably heard of before. But for those of you who haven't, I think you're going to really be attracted to this this article. For those of you who have had... Uh, who have listened to this article, read this article before, would you please consider listening again? As I think that uh, it makes so many points that uh, need to be re-emphasized and maybe looked at and understood again in their context. The article is What the Church Means to People Like Me. It was written by a Latter-day Saint named Richard Pohl. And just going on to uh, his Wikipedia page, uh, Brother Paul was born April 23rd, 1918. Uh, he died April 27th, 1994. Uh, he was a historian, academic, uh, of course I said member of the church. Uh, and he had a very uh, a liberal approach to the church. And he gave lots of talks in the church. And one of his, probably his most known talk, and certainly in my mind his best material, is a talk where he describes two different kinds of Latter-day Saints. And again, the title of it is What the Church Means to People Like Me. I'll link this to the site. But I wanted to read this uh, to you and uh, and give you a chance maybe to to understand this paper and for me to share maybe some thoughts on it. 
as today's episode. He starts off saying, a natural, a natural reaction to my title, since this is not a testimony meeting in which each speaker is his own subject, might be who cares. For who in this congregation, with the possible exception of my brother Carl, are people like me? I have a wife and daughter present who find me in some respects unique, and I am sure there are students at Brigham Young University who hope that I am unique. By the time I have finished, there may be some among you who will share that hope. Yet, I have chosen the topic because I believe that in some important respects I represent a type of Latter-day Saint which is found in almost every ward and branch in the church. By characterizing myself and explaining the nature of my commitment to the gospel, I hope to contribute a little something of value to each of you, whether it turns out that you are people like me or not. My thesis is that there are two distinct types of active and dedicated Latter-day Saints. I'm not talking about good Mormons and Jack Mormons, or about the saints in white hats and the pseudo-saints in black. No, I am talking about two types of involved church members who are here tonight, each deeply committed to the gospel, but also prone toward misgivings about the legitimacy, the adequacy, and the serviceability of the commitment of the other. The purpose of my inquiry is not to support either set of misgivings, but to describe each type as dispassionately as I can, to identify myself with one of the types, and then to bear witness concerning some of the blessings which the church offers to the type I identify with. My prayer is that this effort will help us all look beyond the things which obviously differentiate us toward that unity of faith which Christ set as our common goal. For convenience of reference, let me propose symbols for my two types of Mormons. They have necessarily, they have necessarily to be affirmative images, because I am talking only about good members. I found them in the Book of Mormon, a natural place for a Latter-day Saint to find both good symbols as well as good counsel. The figure for the first type comes from Lehi's dream, the iron rod. The figure for the second comes also from Lehi's experience, the Leahona. So similar they are as manifestations of God's concern for his children, yet just different enough to suit my purposes tonight. The iron rod, as the hymn reminds us, was the word of God. To the person with his hand on the rod, each step of the journey to the tree of life was plainly defined. He had only to hold on as he moved forward. In Lehi's dream, the way was not easy, but it was clear. The Liahona, in contrast, was a compass. It pointed to the destination, but did not fully mark the path. Indeed, the clarity of its directions varied with the circumstances of the user. For Lehi's family, the sacred instrument was a reminder of their temporal and eternal goals, but it was no infallible delineator of their course. Even as the iron rod in the Liahona were both approaches to the word of God and to the kingdom of God, so are our two types of members as they seek the word and the kingdom. The fundamental difference between them lies in their concept of the relation of man to the word of God. Put another way, it is the difference in the meaning assigned to the concept, the fullness of the gospel. Do the revelations of our Heavenly Father give us a handrail to the kingdom or a compass only? The iron rod saint does not look for questions, but for answers, and in the gospel, as he understands it, he finds or is confident that he can find the answer to every important question. The Liahona saint, on the other hand, is preoccupied with questions and skeptical of answers. He finds in the gospel, as he understands it, answers to enough important questions so that he can function purposefully without answers to the rest. 
This last sentence holds the key to the question posed by my title, but before pursuing its implications, let us explore our scheme of classification more fully. As I suggested at the outset, I find iron rods and liahonas in almost every LDS congregation, discernible by the kinds of comments they make in gospel doctrine classes and the very language in which they phrase their testimonies. What gives them their original bent is difficult to identify. The iron rods may be somewhat more common among converts, but many nowadays are attracted to the church by those reasons more appropriate to liahonas, which I will mention later on. Liahona testimonies may be more prevalent among born members who have not had an emotional conversion experience, but many such have developed iron rod commitments in the home, the Sunday school, the mission field, or some other conditioning environment. Social and economic status appear to have nothing to do with the type, and the rather widely held notion that education tends to produce liahonas has so many exceptions that one may plausibly argue that education only makes liahonas more articulate. Parenthetically, some of the most prominent iron rods in the church are on the BYU faculty. Pre-existence may, I suppose, have something to do with the placement in this classification, even as it may account for other life circumstances, but heredity obviously does not. The irritation of the iron rod father confronted by the iconoclastic son is about as commonplace as the embarrassment of the Liahona parent who discovers that his teenage daughter has found comfortable answers in seminary to some of the questions that have perplexed him all his life. The picture is complicated by the fact that changes of type do occur, often in response to profoundly unsettling personal experiences. The Liahona member, who in their context of despair or repentance, makes the leap of faith to iron rod commitment is rather rare. I think, but the investigator of Liahona temperament who becomes an iron rod convert is almost typical. The iron rod member who responds to personal tragedy or intellectual shock by becoming a Liahona is known to all of us. This transition may be, but is not necessarily a stage in migration toward inactivity or even apostasy. My opinion is that one's identification with the iron rods or the Liahonas is more a function of basic temperament and of accidents rather than pre-mortal accomplishments or mortal choices. But that opinion, like many other views expressed in this sermon, has neither scriptural nor scientific validation. A point to underscore in terms of our objective of unity of faith is that iron rods and Liahonas have great difficulty understanding each other. Not at the level of intellectual acceptance of the right to peaceful coexistence, but at the level of personal communion, of empathy. To the iron rod, a questioning attitude suggests an imperfect faith. To the liahona, an unquestioning spirit betokens a closed mind. Neither frequent association, nor even prior personal involvement with the other group guarantees empathy. Indeed, the person who has crossed the line is likely to be least sympathetic and tolerant toward his erstwhile kindred spirits. I want to stop there for a second and just go over a couple of things that he says on this page. Uh, several paragraphs ago, I read this one. It says, The iron rod saint does not look for questions, but for answers. And in the gospel, as he understands it, he finds or is confident that he will find and can find the answer to every important question. The Liahona saint, on the other hand, is preoccupied with questions and skeptical of answers. So this is just a, a primary difference in this dichotomy 
between these two groups. And again, I think we all recognize, hopefully, that dichotomies in general don't do very good because there really is a spectrum. But I feel like for those who have had a crisis of faith or those who have been in trials of faith and have had to deal with these kinds of complex questions, there is this ability to see that that this dichotomy does work on several levels. I'm also sure that as I'm reading this, that for many who may be listening who fall into the iron rod category, that this also speaks to you and I think to both groups helps them see the other people and to be in their shoes for just a moment. I I liked he made the comment that I find iron rods and liahonas in almost every LDS congregation. And it is interesting. I don't think the liahonas in general speak up as much as the iron rods do. But there are in every congregation both groups being represented. And so perhaps as you're listening to this, you might be aware more of the language that people use so that you might at least know that it is not just one way or the other, but that this is simply a a split in the way that different members handle issues, how they see faith, how they deal with spiritual experiences. He also says that the picture is complicated by the fact that changes of type do occur. And so essentially he's speaking about the idea that someone who's a Liahona, a truth seeker, who finds the church becomes this iron rod, dogmatic uh, person in the way that they view uh, the gospel and the answers that come to it. And he also talks about iron rod members who encounter some turmoil to their faith and all of a sudden they have to shift paradigms over to being a Liahona. And rather than having empathy for each other, Rather than having that, instead, there are more odds with each other, and I certainly can testify to that. I I feel anxiety on Sundays at times. When I listen to the talks, I, I'm not angry with the person, but I am frustrated with some of the things they say and with the approach that they take and, and the lack of flexibility they give people like me. And so I can certainly understand why it would seem natural that if we switch from one side of that dichotomy to the other, that we really should be more empathetic. The truth is, is that we are less. I also uh, found the last sentence to be very uh, revealing to me of my own attitude that needed to change. The last sentence said, indeed, the person who has crossed the line is likely to be least sympathetic and tolerant toward his erstwhile kindred spirits. And so from my standpoint, um, it's something I'm working on, but I've got to find a way to be less frustrated at church. I've got to find a way to, to, to let things roll off my back and just to say, hey, you know what? People are different. The way they see the gospel is different. And, uh, and anyway, that's something I'm personally working on. And maybe it's something that you can work on or need to work on. And it requires some humility. It also requires us to be kinder, but also more outspoken in the sense that we kindly let people know we're a little different. And as people begin to see we're different, but that we still love the gospel, still love the Lord, and that we, we've earned their trust, I think empathy will begin to come from both sides. The next page says, uh, Brother Paul says this, he says, I have suggested that the essential difference between the Leahonas and the Iron Rods is their approach to the concept, the Word of God. Let us investigate that now a little. The iron rod is confident that on any question the mind and will of the Lord may be obtained. His sources are threefold, scripture, prophetic authority, and the Holy Spirit. In the standard works of the church, the iron rod member finds far more answers than does his Leahona brother, because he accepts them as God's word in a far more literal sense. In them, he finds answers to questions as diverse as the age and origin of the earth, 
the justification for capital punishment, the proper diet, the proper role of government, the nature and functions of sex, and the nature of man. To the Liahona, he sometimes seems to be reading things into the printed words, but to himself the meaning is clear. In the pronouncements of general authorities, living and dead, the iron rod finds many answers, because he accepts and gives comprehensive application to that language of the Doctrine and Covenants, which declares, and whatsoever they shall speak, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, shall be Scripture, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the mind of the Lord, shall be the word of the Lord, shall be the voice of the Lord, and the power of God unto salvation. This reliance extends to every facet of life, on birth control and family planning, labor relations and race relations, the meaning of the Constitution and prospects for the United Nations, the laws of health and the signs of the times, the Council of the Living Oracles, suffice. Where answers are not found in the published record, they are sought in correspondence and interviews, and once received, they are accepted as definitive. Third, among the sources for the Iron Rod member is the Holy Spirit. As Joseph Smith found answers in the Council of James, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, and so forth. So any Latter-day Saint may do so. Whether it be the choice of a vocation or the choice of a mate, help on a college examination, or finding golden prospects in the mission field, healing the sick, or averting a divorce, in prayer is the answer. The response may not be what was expected, but it will come, and it will be a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Implicit in all this is the confidence of the Iron Rod Latter-day Saint that our Heavenly Father is intimately involved in the day-to-day business of His children. As no sparrow falls without the Father, so nothing befalls man without His will. God knows the answers to all questions and has the solutions to all problems. And the only thing which denies man access to this reservoir is his own stubbornness. Truly, then, the person who opens his mind and heart to the channels of revelation past and present has the iron rod, which leads unerringly to the kingdom. The Liahona Latter-day Saint lacks this certain confidence. Not that he rejects the concepts upon which it rests, that God lives, that he loves his children, that his knowledge and power are efficacious for salvation, and that he does reveal his will, will, as the ninth article of faith affirms, nor does he reserve the right of selective obedience to the will of God as he understands it. No, the problem for the Liahona involves the adequacy of the sources on which the iron rod testimony depends. The problem is in perceiving the will of God when it is mediated, as it is for almost all mortals by the arm of flesh. The Liahona is convinced by logic and experience that no human instrument, even a prophet, is capable of transmitting the word of God so clearly and comprehensively that it can be universally understood and easily appropriated by man. Because the Liahona finds it impossible to accept the literal, verbal inspiration of the standard works, the sufficiency of scriptural answers to questions automatically comes into question. If Eve was not made from Adam's rib, how much of the Bible is historic truth? If geology and anthropology have undermined Bishop Usher's chronology, which places creation at 4000 BC, how much of the Bible is scientific truth? And if our Latter-day scriptures have been so significantly revised since their original publication, can it be assumed that they are now infallibly authoritative? To the Liahona, These volumes are sources of inspiration and moral truth, but they leave many specific questions unanswered or uncertainly answered. 
As for the authority of the Latter-day Prophets, the Liahona finds consensus among them on gospel fundamentals, but far-ranging diversity on many important issues. The record shows error, as in Brigham Young's statements about the continuation of slavery, and it shows change of counsel, as in the matter of gathering to Zion. It shows differences of opinion, Heber J. Grant and Reed Smoot on the League of Nations, and David O. McKay and Joseph Fielding Smith on the process of creation. To the Liahonas, the living oracles are God's special witnesses of the gospel of Christ, and his agents in directing the affairs of the church. But like the scriptures, they leave many important questions unanswered, or uncertainly answered. The iron rod proposition that the Spirit will supply what the prophets have not gives difficulty on both philosophical and experimental grounds. Claims that prayer is an infallible, almost contractual link between God and man through the Holy Spirit finds Liahona Mormons perplexed by the nature of the evidence. As a method of confirming truth, the witness of the Spirit demonstrably has not produced uniformity of gospel interpretation even among iron rod saints, and it is allegedly by the witness of that same Spirit, by the burning within, that many apostates pronounce the whole church in error. As a method of influencing the course of events, it seems unpredictable, and some of the miracles claimed for it seem almost whimsical. By the prayer of faith, one man recovers his lost eyeglasses. In spite of such prayer, another man goes blind, all of which leaves Leahona Mormon, leaves a Leahona Mormon with a somewhat tenuous connection with the Holy Spirit. He may take comfort in his imperfect knowledge that the portion of the article of faith which says that God will yet reveal many great and important things, and he may reconcile his conviction of God's love and his observation of the uncertain earthly outcomes of faith by emphasizing the divine commitment to the principle of free agency, as I shall presently do. In any case, it seems to the Liahona Mormon that God's involvement in day-to-day affairs must be less active and intimate than the Iron Rod Mormon believes, because there are so many unsolved problems and unanswered prayers. Is the Iron Rod member unaware of these considerations which loom so large in the Liahona member's definition of his relationship to the Word of God? In some instances, I believe the answer is yes. For in our activity-centered church, it is quite possible to be deeply and satisfyingly involved without looking seriously at the philosophical implications of some gospel propositions which are professed. In many instances, however, the Iron Rod Saint has found sufficient answers to the Liahona questions. He sees so much basic consistency in the scriptures and in the teachings of the Latter-day Prophets that the apparent errors and incongruities can be handled by interpretation. He finds so much evidence in the eminence of God in human affairs that the apparent the apparently pointless evil and injustice in the world can be handled by the valid assertion that God's ways are not man's ways. He is likely to credit his Liahona contemporaries with becoming so preoccupied with certain problems that they cannot see the gospel forest for the trees. And he may even attribute that preoccupation to an insufficiency of faith. As a Liahona, I must resist the attribution, though I cannot deny the preoccupation. Both kinds of Mormons have problems, not just the ordinary personal problems to which all flesh is is heir, but problems growing out of the nature of their church commitment. The iron rod has a natural tendency to develop answers where none may, in fact, have been revealed. 
He may find arguments against social security in the Book of Mormon. He may discover in esoteric prophetic utterances a timetable for that second coming of which the day and hour no man knoweth. His dogmatism may become offensive to his peers in the church and a barrier to communication with his own family. His confidence in his own insights may make him impatient with those whom he publicly sustains. He may also cling to cherished answers in the face of new revelation or be so shaken by innovation that he forms new fundamentalist sects. The iron rod concept holds many firm in the church, but it leads some out. The Leahona, on the other hand, has the temptation to broaden the scope of his questioning until even the most clearly defined church doctrines and policies are included. His resistance to statistics on principle may deteriorate into a carping criticism of programs and leaders. His ties to the church may become so nebulous that he cannot communicate them to his children. His testimony may become so selective as to exclude him from some forms of church activity or to make him a hypocrite in his own eyes as he participates in them. His persistence in doubting may alienate his brethren and eventually destroy the substance of his gospel commitment. Then he too is out, without fireworks, but not without pain. Both kinds of Latter-day Saints serve the church. They talk differently and apparently think and feel differently about the gospel. But as long as they avoid the extremes just mentioned, they share a love for the commitment, they share a love for and commitment to the church. They cannot therefore be distinguished on the basis of attendance at meetings, or participation on welfare projects or contributions, or faithfulness in the performance of callings. They may or may not be hundred percenters, but the degree of their activity is not a function of type, insofar as I have been able to observe. It may be that iron rods are a little more faithful in genealogical work, but even this is not certain. Both kinds of members are found at every level of church responsibility, in bishoprics, relief society presidencies, and stake presidencies, and high councils, and even among the general authorities. But whatever their private orientation, the public deportment of the general authorities seems to me to represent a compromise, which would be natural in the circumstances. They satisfy the iron rods by emphasizing the solid core of revealed truth and discouraging speculative inquiry into matters of faith and morals. And they comfort the Leahonas by resisting the pressure to make pronouncements on all subjects and by reminding the saints that God has not revealed the answer to every question or to find the response to every prayer. As I have stated, the iron rods and the Leahonas have some difficulty understanding each other. Lacking the patience, wisdom, breadth of experience, or depth of institutional commitment of the general authorities, we sometimes criticize and judge each other. But usually we live and let live, each finding in the church what meets his needs and all sharing the gospel blessings which do not depend on identity of testimony. Which brings me to the second part of my remarks, the part which gives my talk its title, what the church means to people like me. Although I have tried to characterize two types of Latter-day Saints with objectivity, I can speak with conviction only about one example from one group. In suggesting briefly what the church offers to a Leahona like me, I hope to provoke all of us to re-examine the nature of our own commitments and to grow an understanding and love for those whose testimonies are defined in different terms. By my, initial, by my initial characterization of types, I am the kind of Mormon who is preoccupied with questions and skeptical of answers. I find in the Gospels, I understand it, answers enough to important questions so that I can function purposefully and I hope effectively without present questions to the, present answers to the rest. 
The primary question of this generation, it seems to me, is the question of meaning. Does life really add up to anything at all? At least at the popular level, the philosophy of existentialism asks and tries to answer the question of how to function significantly in a world which apparently has no meaning. When the philosophy is given a religious context, it becomes an effort to salvage some of the values of traditional religion for support in this meaningless world. To the extent that existence is seen as meaningless, even absurd, human experiences have only immediate significance. A psychedelic trip stands on par with a visit to the Sistine Chapel or a concert to the Tabernacle Choir. What the individual does with himself or other freely consenting adults is nobody's business, whether it involves pot, perversion, or making love, not war. For me, the gospel answers this question of meaning, and the answer is grandly challenging. It lies in three revealed propositions. One, man is eternal. Two, man is free. Three, God's work and glory is to exalt this eternal free agent, man. The central conception is freedom. With belief in the doctrine of free agency, I can cope with some of the riddles and tragedies which are cited in support of the philosophy of the absurd. In the nature of human freedom, as I understand it, is to be found the reconciliation of the concept of a loving God and the facts of an unlovely world. The restored gospel teaches that the essential stuff of man is eternal, that man is a child of God and that it is man's destiny to become like his father. But this destiny can only be achieved as man voluntarily gains the knowledge, the experience, and the discipline which Godhood requires and represents. This was the crucial question resolved in the Council of Heaven, whether man should come into an environment of genuine risk where he would walk by faith. To me, this prerequisite for exaltation explains the apparent remoteness of God from any aspects of the human predicament, my predicament. My range of freedom is left large, and arbitrary divine interference with that freedom is kept minimal in order that I may grow. Were God's hand always upon my shoulder, or his iron rod always in my grasp, my range of free choice would be constricted, and my growth as well. This view does not rule out miraculous interventions by our Heavenly Father, but it does not permit their being commonplace. What is seen as a miracle by the iron rod saints, my type tends to interpret as coincidence, or psychosomatic manifestation, or an accurately remembered or reported event. The same attitude is even more likely with regard to the satanic role in human affairs. The conflict between good and evil with its happy and unhappy outcomes is seen more often as a derivative of man's nature and environment than as a contest between titanic powers for the capture of human, the capture of human pawns. If God cannot, in the ultimate sense, coerce the eternal intelligences which are embodied in his children, then how much less is Lucifer able to do? We may yield to the promptings of good or evil, but we are not puppets. There is another aspect of the matter. If, with or without prayer, a man is arbitrarily spared the consequences of his own fallibility and the natural consequences of the kind of hazardous world in which he lives, then freedom becomes meaningless and God capricious. If the law that fire burns, that bullets kill, that age deteriorates, and that rain falls on the just and the unjust, is sporadically suspended upon petition of faith, what happens to that reliable connection between cause and consequence, which is a condition of knowledge, and what a peril to faith lies in the idea that God can break the casual chain, that he frequently does break it, but that in my individual case he may not choose to do so? This is the dilemma of theodicy. 
reconciling God's omnipotence with evil and suffering, which is so dramatically phrased, If God is good, he is not God. If God is God, he is not good. From what has been said, it must be apparent that Leahonas like me do not see prayer as a form of spiritual mechanics, in spite of such scriptural language as prove me herewith, and I the Lord am bound. Prayer is rarely for miracles, or even for new answers. It is, or ought to be, an intensely personal exercise in sorting out and weighing the relevant factors in our problems, and looking to God as we consider the alternative solutions. Many of our problems would solve themselves if we would consider only options on which we could honestly ask God's benediction. We might pray for a miracle, especially in a time of deep personal frustration or tragedy, but we would think it presumptuous to command God and would not suspend the future on the outcome of the petition. This is not to say that Leahonas cannot verbalize prayer as proficiently as their iron rod contemporaries. One cannot be significantly involved in the church without mastering the conventional prayer forms and learning to fit the petition to the proportions of the occasion. But even in the public prayers, it is possible, I believe, for the attentive ear to detect those differences, which I have tried to describe. To oppose evil as we can, to bear adversity as we must, and to do our jobs well, these are the petitions of Leahona prayers. They invoke God's blessings, but they require man's answering. To this Leahona Latter-day Saint, God is powerful to save. He is pledged to keep the way of salvation open to man and to do, through the example and sacrifice of his son and the ordinances and teachings of his church, what man cannot do for himself. But beyond this, he has left things pretty much up to me, a free agent, a God in embryo who must learn by experience as well as direction how to be like God. In this circumstance, the Church of Jesus Christ performs three special functions for me. Without them, my freedom might well become unbearable. In the first place, the Church reminds me almost incessantly that what I do makes a difference. It matters to my fellow men because most of what I do or fail to do affects their progress towards salvation. And it matters to me even if it has no discernible influence upon others. I reject the hippie stance. Not because there is something intrinsically wrong with beards and sandals, but with estrangement and aimlessness. Even through life, even though life is eternal, time is short, and I have none to waste. In the second place, the church suggests and sometimes prescribes guidelines for the use of freedom. The deportment standards of the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, the rules for mental and physical well-being and the Doctrine and Covenants, the reminders and challenges in the temple ceremony. These are examples, and they harmonize with free agency because even those which are prescribed are not coerced. There is a difference here, I think, between the way iron rods and leahonas look at the guidelines. Answer-oriented, the iron rods tend to spell things out. Sabbath observance becomes no TV or movies, or TV but no movies, or uplifting TV and no other, or no studying, or studying for religion classes but no others. Leahonas like me, the Sabbath commandment is a reminder of the kinship of free men and a concerned and loving father. What is fitting, not what is conventional, becomes the question. On a lovely autumn evening, I may even with quiet conscience pass up on an MIA fireside for a drive in the canyon. But the thankfulness for guidelines is nonetheless strong. In the final place, the contribution of the church in giving me something to relate to, to belong to, to feel a part of. Contemporary psychology has much to say about the awful predicament of alienation. 
The lonely crowd is the way one expert describes it. Ex-Mormons often feel it. A good friend who somehow migrated out of the church put it this way the other day. I don't belong anywhere. For the act of Latter-day Saints, such alienation is impossible. The church is an association of kindred spirits, a subculture of folk. And this is the tie which binds Iron Rods and Leahonas together as strongly as the shared testimony of Joseph Smith. It is a fundam- It is as fundamental to the sol- solidarity of LDS families, almost as the doctrine of eternal marriage itself. It makes brothers and sisters of the convert and the daughter of the Utah pioneers of the Hong Kong branch president and the missionary from Cedar City. It unites this congregation, the genealogists and the procrastinators, the old-fashioned patriarchs and the family planners, the eggheads and the doubters of the wisdom of men. This sense of belonging is what makes me feel at home in the Palo Alto ward. Leahonas and iron rods together, we are a product of great historic experience, laborers in the great enterprise, and sharers of a commitment to the proposition that life is important because God is real and we are his children, free agents with the opportunity to become heirs of his kingdom. This is the witness of the Spirit to this Leahona Latter-day Saint. When the returning missionary warms his homecoming with a narrative of a remarkable conversion, I may note the inconsistency or naveta of some of his analysis, but I am moved nevertheless by the picture of lives transformed, made meaningful by the gospel. When home teachers call, I am sometimes self-conscious about the role-playing in which we all seem to be engaged. Yet, I ask my wife often, in our times of deepest concern and warmest parental satisfaction, what might our daughters have become without the church? When a dear friend passes, an accident victim, I may recoil from the well-meant suggestion that God's need for him was greater than his family's. But my lamentation is sweetened by the realization of what the temporal support of the saints and eternal promises of the Lord mean to those who mourn. For this testimony, the church which inspires and feeds it, and fellowship in the church with the iron rods and leahonas who share it, I express my thanks to my Heavenly Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. It says here that uh, Brother Pohl was a professor of history at Western Illinois University, uh, formerly a vice president of administration uh, there, and a chairman of history at BYU. It also says that he has published extensively, uh, and he re, uh, recently co-authored a biography of Hubie Brown, which I find interesting because Elder Hubie Brown was definitely a, a Leahona Latter-day Saint. Elder Uchtdorf, I see as a Leahona Latter-day Saint. Uh, Elder Holland, I think, has become kind of a Leahona Latter-day Saint. Uh, I look at Elder Oaks and Elder Packer, uh, Elder Quentin Cook. I see them as uh, Iron Rod Latter-day Saints. And... And it's not a good or bad thing necessarily. It's simply the way in which we we look at the world and the way in which we interpret the gospel. And again, as I always kind of try to point out, there's flexibility to be on both ends of this spectrum. I also wanted to uh, to just mention um, when Elder or when Elder Pohl gave this uh, talk, when Brother Pohl gave this talk, he he met some resistance. Um, he gave this talk in. Uh, 19, I believe, 71. Let me just see here. I'm sorry. He gave the talk in uh, in 1967. Uh, it was published in Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. In 1971, in a general conference address, uh, Apostle Harold B. Lee seemed to be alluding 
to Brother Pohl's article, he said this. He said, if there is any one thing most needed in this time of tumult and frustration, it is an iron rod as a safe guide along the straight path on the way to eternal life. There are many who profess to be religious and speak of themselves as Christians, and according to one such as accepting the scriptures only as, a, as sources of inspiration and moral truth, and then ask in their smugness, do the revelations of God give us a handrail to the kingdom of God, as the Lord's messenger told Lehi, or merely a compass? Wouldn't it be a great thing if all who were well-schooled in secular learning could hold fast to the iron rod or the word of God? And so it is apparent that uh, President Lee, who was an apostle at the time, was irritated uh, with Brother Pohl's article. And it, it is unique, though. As I read Brother Pohl's article, I, I absolutely see this dichotomy, and I agree with it. And it doesn't make one side bad or one side good, but it certainly should not have Leahona Mormons being simply dismissed, as as there really are both approaches within Mormonism. Uh, Harold B. Lee is also quoted as saying, a liberal in the church is merely one who does not have a testimony. And, and again, I think we need to recognize that prophets and apostles are fallible and, and that I think that when we attack intellectuals or liberals in the church, we're doing a great disservice. And I don't think you're going to see as much of that going forward, at least at least recognizing that there is a spectrum. I mean, I certainly see that extreme conservatives on one end of the spectrum are dangerous, just as extreme liberals on the other side of the spectrum are dangerous uh, to our faith. But there still is a spectrum of conservativeness and liberalness within Mormonism that is not only permitted, but encouraged and welcomed and needed. And so we ought to uh, ought to understand that. As I read through this article, it hit me about several ideas of uh, things that I was just, way I was incorporating um, my new paradigm and how I interacted at church. And at times my growing frustration with members when something would be taught that I now see as this iron rod comment in my Leahona perspective was just burning under my skin at what had been taught or said. And so I'm trying to be better at that. I'm trying to let, let these kinds of things just roll off my back. I, uh, I was caught kind of by the way this paper worded everything. I think it did it in such a way that both sides didn't feel attacked. Both sides saw the weakness and strengths in their stance. And most importantly, both sides might better come to understand each other. And I think if they do that, then more discussion can happen and truth can filter its way to the top. It can rise to the surface as everybody is open to discussing these different ways that we each see things. I hope this was beneficial to you. It's an article that I love. I'll link it to this episode. Please check it out if you want to read it again. It's one of these articles that if you just read once every five or ten years, it'll mean something completely different to you. I'm grateful for Brother Paul for his willingness to stand out front, to speak up, and to speak on behalf of Latter-day Saints like me. God bless you, and may the Lord warm your shoulders. Amen.
Jesus.